You're listening to the ninth episode of Season 3 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This podcast is about strict, rules-focused Christianity not working, but is not an attack on faith. It's about trying to maintain some connection to God despite absolutely everything and everyone. It's about depression, words, and music. Each episode is me pontificating and ruminating around a song from my concept album, Death in Tiny Spoonfuls. Episode 9. Please come with us. Okay, we're going to dive right into... Um, no, there'll be no diving right in. We don't have the budget for that. Okay, we'll be delving into... No, no no budget for delving either. We're going to jump right into... No, that's way above our operating cost budget profile, too. Okay, well, it's certainly going to be a journey. Um, journeys are definitely outside budgetary parameters, besides travel restrictions. Well, let me start out by saying how excited I am to be going on this adventure with all of you and... Adventure? <laughs> Excitement? <laughs> Did I crave not these things? Okay, do we have any budget set aside for further ado? No, we just don't have those funds right now. Well then, without further ado, as someone raised fundamentalist, surrounded by creationists, I have found it sometimes very useful to occasionally look over the fence and imagine viewing life in the Bible through a more evolutionary or anthropological lens, so to speak. So, I've done this from time to time with various things. For example, trying to figure out why leaving one's birth culture and upbringing behind or making choices that get one kicked out of it is so hard, is such a big deal. Well, it really seems true to me that there are deep instincts ingrained into us almost at the cellular level telling us that we absolutely need our community, our tribe. Without your tribe, you are vulnerable, needy, and alone, and in danger of starving and dying of exposure. When your tribe, therefore, threatens to abandon you in the snow or push you over a cliff or leave you in the ditch for not taking the place and playing the role they assign you, you feel that. The threat of them possibly doing this to you feels like it would be a really serious thing. So, if you decide you're sick of life in the tribe and maybe you're going to leave, you may well find your bone-deep instincts are working against you. And take it from me, if you've been ousted from your community, a very different thing from choosing to walk away once you feel ready, much of your inner coping stuff takes a big hit. Feels like having had a rock hurled through your window. You cannot continue as before in almost any way. The tribe had served to tell you who and what was good or bad, valuable or worthless, and safe or dangerous. They decided for you if you were good or bad, vulnerable or worthless, safe or dangerous. So leaving? Your software and unthinking visceral instincts then all seem to need to be painstakingly uninstalled and replaced with a new operating system entirely. Your life needs a hard reboot, reformat, and reinstall, but you have to do today and tomorrow and the day after that, and so you can't really shut down like that and start over. Michael has some thoughts on the decision to leave versus waiting to get kicked out. And it didn't really occur to you to just stay and wait for them to kick you out. I didn't want that because I, I see where you're at, and it's a, yeah. it's a who who. The, the constant stigma on that of that all your life. I mean, that's that's a, a horrible cross to bear. You want to be a wicked person. Yeah. But, but that's very me, is if you give me a rule, 
if I don't like the rule, I don't break it. I'm, I'm, you know, free in a different way, but also I'm not going to punish myself. I'm going to make you do it. When Angel left the Children of God cult, she went through this mental reconfiguring process. I left very uneasily. I didn't mean to leave. I kind of left on accident, if you will, when I was 23. And since then, it's been, you know, a few years of survival, making sure that you can survive in the outside world. And then once you make sure that can happen, then there's the deconstruction of your mental um, establishment and the reconstruction of it in a way that makes sense to you and like using your own cognitive abilities and deciding what's going to be in your brain as opposed to just letting what is in your brain just exist. And everything's harder now because of that. Now you don't have your tribe to ask for refuge, solidarity, support, a reality check, a sounding board, character references for jobs and mates and Christian friends. In fact, even if it sucked when they didn't do a very good job of helping you in those ways, and you never felt very included by them, it sucks even more when they actively start working against you, treating you as an enemy of the tribe, an outside danger to it, giving you bad character references for potential jobs and mates and Christian friends, spreading around wild stories, very bad character references. I can't tell you. How many times I was making a good connection to a brethren or other Christian girl, and the vultures started circling in my peripheral vision, and the next day that girl had been spoken to and was no longer open for my getting to know. Audition over. We'll call you. Chris remembers taking a step back socially as an adolescent from anyone at meeting who was getting into trouble with meeting. As a Christian person... Do you think that you ever played a role in somebody was in disfavor, they were worldly, and you and other people kind of shunned them or avoided them or tried to not be associated with them because of their reputation? Probably, especially growing up, you know, teenagers to my 20s. If there was someone who was kicked out or um, not so much an outsider because there weren't very many outsiders. But if there was somebody who was kicked out, then I followed along and said, sorry. I'm not going to talk to you. Not my place. Did you say it like that or not? Not exactly. Oh, I'd be polite to them to their face, but I, I wouldn't try and reach out or. Hmm. Were you aware of being part of a group that wanted them to change their behavior? It was just a, Hey, this is the way you're supposed to treat these people. Right. Here's, this is what the Bible says. Here's how they screwed up. And here's what it says to correct this, to punish them. To change their ways, I guess. Mm -hmm. But that part wasn't so much thought about as more what was expected of me. Looking back, did that work? Did they tend to learn their lesson and change their behavior because they were being excluded or did they just keep on going out that door? Well, no, I think it worked because they, maybe some came back, but they usually left. <laughs> so when I, when, I, when I said worked, I meant, I meant that they changed their behavior so that you could all welcome them back in. And you're being that it worked, that it, that it made them leave. I was being facetious. I, I don't know if it worked or not. Usually I didn't talk to them. So right. I don't know if it worked or not. And in my experience, when people left, quote unquote, a lot of times they just kind of slowly faded away. So you'd barely notice then sort of realize, oh, I haven't seen them for a long time. We kind of elbowed them out and then they have, oddly haven't come back. Um, yeah. His wife, Sherry, doesn't remember taking part in this at all. The, the coda to the question is, have you ever participated 
in someone who is under discipline or shunning the worldly person? Have you ever helped somebody be excluded? I don't think so. In fact, it feels very like your name has been added to some kind of registry. It's like the Me Too movement had added you to the shitty men's list, only it's the crappy Christian register. Do not date or be seen hanging out with this person under any circumstances. One of the hallmarks of communities like this is they lack a sense of proportion. I have always found the canary in the coal mine as to all that is if they lack a sense of humor. The two senses tend to go hand in hand, and if a whole group collectively lacks a sense of proportion, that includes a lack of correctly labeling exactly which people and things are dangerous and exactly how dangerous those people and things are and exactly what should be done about all that now. Melody has some examples of people getting into trouble for relatively minor things. So in my church, and I was going, this was a gospel hall, I was going to this church at the time, but... These things are handled, um, they would say discreetly. Mm-hmm. I would say secretively. Mm-hmm. Um, because the guideline, I, I say secretively because the guidelines are so unclear. So we had this one guy who had come sort of out of the blue. He knew the people in the church from like decades back. Um, so he somehow came back to town, I guess, brought his daughter to church. He, you have to, in the gospel hall, you ask for membership. The elders decide to let you in or not. Like if you, if they think you're mature enough, they'll let you in. And what that means is you can um, take communion. So they let him in. Um, a year or two later, he came to the elders and confessed that he had smoked weed. This was before weed was legal in Washington. He had been a former addict, you know, or an addict in recovery or at least a frequent user. Um, and instead of offering him any grace, they asked him to leave. Mm-hmm. So one trans, bad. yes, one transgression, one sin, and he was asked to leave. Just like and, Jesus did. Yes, exactly. Exactly like Jesus did every time he encountered a sinner. Yeah. Uh, another time, one of the brethren in the church, uh, his wife caught him with pornography. I think that was a repeat offense. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they had been trying to work through it, uh, caught with pornography, kicked out of the church. Or he may have left on his own. I do not remember. Natalie was able to fill me in as to how getting into trouble with the Mormons works. If you were a full member, you would be kicked out. And the way it's supposed to work is that they basically give you time out for a while. And once you um, kind of they think you repented and you know better and you're not going to do that again, um, they may let you back in. Was there anything like that? Yeah, you would have to confess your sins to the your local leader um, and talk about it and seek guidance and, yeah, repent. But you wouldn't be excommunicated for it. And I don't know what the threshold is for that. Mm-hmm. I don't personally know anybody who's been excommunicated. Um, but it would have to be more than that. I think there's always, like, this emphasis on, like, redemption and you know if- almost everyone i know is excommunicated from my group wow tim was able to tell me about how jehovah's witnesses treat people who leave or get kicked out of their group my mom's a beautiful woman she always been very pretty and uh uh when she got married in a church her entire family that i told you about jehovah's witnesses disowned her and she was disfellowshipped yeah. and they said we're done with you and, and to this day she's got family that she loves very dearly that won't, won't speak to her because that's their thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So in the gospel hall, when you are asked to leave a church, asked to leave the fellowship, they, they read you out. It's mm-hmm. called reading out. They yeah. have prepared a letter and it's like, you know, dear saints, this is blah, blah, blah. I was never there. I don't know if I was just gone every Sunday that this happened, but I don't recall those instances. I, um, my, I missed my, my own. <laughs> Were you sick for it? Did you call in sick that day? No. Well, not not literally, but I, I had this problem for the last kind of 10 years of my membership that I found that going out made me feel sick. I, uh, I just yes. couldn't deal with yes. what was happening. Yes. So here, related to the constant remembering of the past, I have found myself the last couple months um, getting ready for church Sunday mornings, I feel anxiety. I just, I like, what's going to happen? We keep having the... People just keep making these crazy comments during the open worship time. And I just, we had one guy go on a transgender rant a couple weeks ago. And like, I'm just, I can't handle this. Not getting as much love as they wanted in the group they were married to as child brides, both Michael and Ruth were into cheating on the meeting. And yet you guys stayed in much longer. I know. I know. Well, I, me and Bethany did. Mark got kicked out. Nathan was kicked out and never brought back. and. Karen is still in it. Yes. Your in-laws um, are very central brethren figures, very central. And that means that Bethany's not some, you know, idiot boy like me that they want to get rid of. Bethany is the hope for the future. She's part of the generation. They're hoping the brethren has a future. This is um, like a purebred blue blood brethren girl. Um, and they're hoping that maybe she has some indiscretions, but we're looking for her and her offspring to bring us a future with the right last names, hopefully to the brethren. And you guys left anyway when they didn't want you to leave. It was really hard. Like I, I knew all the way back when I was 21 that I was, that it was over and that I was going to be leaving. Um, and it took me till 2005. I would have been 32 somewhere in there. I don't know to actually do it, but my thought process was, yeah, I don't agree with these people but if everybody that doesn't agree with them walks away from them what chance do they ever have of, of and i'm not trying to put myself on a pedestal but i'm like I'm, I'm seeing that there's more here that than that these people need um that they, they need to get over the whole all you know all these concepts and they need somebody there that's still showing them talking truth and showing them love um so that was my initial reason for sticking around for so long but as time went on i realized that if i were to act true to my belief i needed to be breaking bread with all the believers um on the earth which is what we said we did but you know of course you had to go through the you 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 know you you couldn't basically because to to be clear uh, your stated reason for leaving it wasn't rules about drinking it wasn't rules about smoking you were oddly free and doing all of those things privately. And they wouldn't have been too surprised to hear that. They still weren't trying to kick you out. The reason that you gave and that you would say, if there was one reason was that you weren't allowed to worship with other Christians. I, well, here's how it was. I was, I was in the Brooklyn assembly at the time and some friends came in from out of town who actually were ex meeting, but were now meeting on their own in their house. And uh, they came by and, 
uh, we're like, oh, we, they were talking about it. I was like, oh, you want to break bread? Because in my mind, I was free. Mm-hmm. I wasn't bound by the, the the unspoken laws of the the brethren. And they said, yeah. And so we did. And then another point, we went to an Anglican church in England when we were in England. Mm-hmm. And that the, there was a verse written on the back wall. Uh, and it was a really beautiful uh, uh, service and pastor. And there was a verse written on the back wall that said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the mystery. And are looking at each other. We're like, we're agreeing with everything they're saying. It's like, and they passed around bread and wine. And we're like, we saw no reason that we couldn't take it. And we're like, mm-hmm. well, you know, we're in fellowship with you guys. Um, so we, I, I went to the, finally I was like, oh, this is going to be an issue if it ever comes out into the open and it's going to blow up. And I don't want to get kicked out of for something stupid. So I went to the, the, uh, leading brothers in Brooklyn. I was like, hey, you know, look, this is what's going on. We're, you know, Christians come to our house and we break bread with them. Is, do you guys have a problem with that? And they're like, no, no, we don't have a problem with that. Or if anybody else finds out about it, any of the other assemblies, we're going to get kicked out. Yes. <laughs> I was like, oh. You are worshiping with other Christians and the brethren group you're associated with are in danger of getting kicked out in the whole brethren world if they don't kick you out, really, which they don't want to do. Right, yeah. So the choice I was faced with was either I stop um, breaking bread with other Christians and only break bread with uh, the ordained, you know, known about uh, meeting people. And and if it's going to be somewhere that's not already ordained, I have to, you know, call them up and make sure that it's okay. Or I have to leave. and. Mm -hmm. Step away. Ruth has something to add about exclusive church membership in a church that denied being a church or having an exclusive membership, any elders enforcing it or any membership at all. My experience of that was when I was about 25 and I started to date my, who's now my ex-husband, and he wanted to bring me to his church. And so I was curious, of course. So when I went to his church, of course, um, my ex was a Methodist and Methodists practice an open table, open communion. I realized that Sunday morning that what they were doing, practicing that open table, that was a holy thing. That was a spiritual thing. And that for people that don't know what you mean by open table, you're talking about what almost any church does. There's a few that don't, where basically if you show up Sunday morning and they're going to do communion and you tell them that you're a Christian and you would like to take communion with them, the bread and the wine, that they recognize your Christianity and that that is really the only prerequisite to you worshiping there. And what you're saying is Precise. that they were they were doing that. Mm-hmm. Precisely nothing, so. Nothing crazy. What, what you and I grew up with, of course, was that first of all, if you wanted to travel, you had to have a letter of commendation from the elders who weren't the elders, but they were the elders from our assembly. And they would write you a letter of commendation. And then you would travel and you would go and, you know, visit another assembly and that your letter of commendation would be read Sunday morning and that then you would be permitted to break bread. And you would always, always, always want the letter to state that you were in happy fellowship, mm-hmm. not just fellowship, happy fellowship. And if you were a guy, I, it might even promise that you were being used of the Lord in the preaching of the gospel or, or oh, ministry. He, right. And then maybe they could, maybe that was like a, a subtle hint that they should probably ask you to take the gospel next Sunday. Oh yes. That's, that's a, that's a really good point. That's a really good point that, you know, 
you were, you were um, being used of the Lord or that you had a burden, like you had a burden of the Lord for the gospel, for lost souls. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm not sure that any other churches, well, I mean, the Catholics, of course, practice a closed table. I have had communion with the Catholics against all the rules, but I did it anyway. <laughs> and of course, the Plymouth um, Brethren Christian Church, as a Christian, you or I would not be allowed in the room for them to do Bible study on any day of the week. Oh, no, 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 never. No, we wouldn't. Has it struck you the way that it struck mm-hmm. me what the original scriptural context for the expression letter of commendation is? Yes. It's a rhetorical comment, isn't it? it it's not meant to be taken literally. It was nothing to do with being permitted to break bread or not break bread. No. It's basically the, the Apostle Paul not necessarily getting along well with an assembly and talking about maybe visiting them and mm-hmm. saying like, I'm not going to need like a letter, a reference letter. Am I to come guys? It was and, really rather sarcastic. Right. Tone. And so what, what does the Plymouth Brethren mind do? There's like, Oh, well, I guess everyone needs a letter, a reference letter then to, and it's like, no, <laughs> he's Very saying, literal. yeah. And that's all a, a letter of commendations, like a reference letter. And, we take a, I think, an, a rhetorical or an ironic statement of like, I don't actually need a reference letter, do I, guys? And mm-hmm. we turn that into everyone needs a reference letter, guys. Right. The right, Apostle right. Paul says. And is to make sure that nobody slipped in who shouldn't have been there. It was very much about, would you use the word gatekeeping? Yes. And I think that they talked about guarding the table, which think about the, the irreverence <laughs> of that we're guarding the guarding Lord's the name, guarding yeah. the Lord's table, guarding the Lord's name, protecting the yeah. Lord from who or what? The idea that that's mm-hmm. what we're doing, um, that we're we're guarding the Lord so that He won't get hurt or defiled or anything. Mm. Like, what God do they believe in? I don't, I don't know. I, I know I, He must be a very fragile and like one of the idols that could be just pushed over and broken. Absolutely. So I participated in an open table and you know openly participating in communion with a church that wasn't my own church, and I realized that what I had done, if I let anyone know what I had done. I was going to get put away from the Lord's table. We didn't excommunicate. We put away. You didn't leave or you didn't fuck up. You, you fell away. Yes. You lost sight of your seat. Lost you sight lost of sight. it. Every Christian has, has a seat at the table. Every but we Christian make, has a seat at the table. When we make sure that. that loaf, Every morning, every Sunday morning, when we look at that loaf, we see every single blood-bought believer. And we decide which of them are allowed to sit in their seats. Because that's obviously our place. Of course. To to judge who gets to break bread and who doesn't. I can remember so many times a young person would ask. We didn't ask if we could have communion. We asked for our place at the Lord's table. It Mm -hmm. was our place, but you had to ask for it and you might get it and you might not. And you were in limbo for a few weeks, whether or not you could break bread, because that was very much of a status. Although I have, I have memories of it being a very holy, very spiritual thing. But you know, what makes me sad is that as I got older, I lost that sense that it was a connection with Christ. And more and more, it was a more of a status. Who got the the loaf passed and who didn't? more divisions, the more it became like a gesture of loyalty that I still remain with this group, despite all those who have wandered off or have lost their way or whatever. I have lost the path or stepped off the path. So it became about that. And there was way too many sermons about how that we, 
sermons that in some very couched terms, basically, you know, we thank the O Lord that we are not as these other Plymouth brethren and, and the fact that we're right. And, and that bothered me increasingly because I wasn't convinced anyone sounded very right for a song called No One's Right. 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 Now it's time for the horse to ring a declaring war and tis the season for riding out together Who we've been presenting at the Go-Ho Tell us side of things Too late To pretend that this is nice and simple Too late To pretend that things are clear And it's high time We accepted what we're bumping up Because there's no second Did, did you end up taking any heat for going to the Methodist ceremony? Oh, did I ever? I did. And I was taken aside. You know, when you're taken aside by your own peers, by girls that you've grown up with, and the adults in the meeting are trying to use these, your peers to talk to you, to try to reach you. That's really sad. Think about the position that it puts those people in. Sounds culty to even talk about. It's very, very, very culty. There was always a couple of people, though, you know, even though like maybe I felt like a whole group was, was against me, there would always be a couple of people in that group that were still for me, you know. <laughs> but with like the Jehovah's Witnesses, like they're not allowed to, right? Well, I've talked to several Jehovah's Witnesses since, you know, my mom became a Christian and she was a fellowship. They always say the same thing. Well, she was the one who was disfellowshipped because she was baptized as Jehovah's Witness. You were never baptized as Jehovah's Witness. Therefore, we don't have anything against you or your brothers. I mean, I've had family members say that. John, raised in the cult wing of the Plymouth Brethren, also has some concrete examples of public community shaming for sins that seem to us extremely minor. I'm sure you have things to say about priestlies and so on, just about you're living your life and someone has a word with you to tell you that you need to adjust certain things, and this continually happens. Well, I got that priestly about the television. Okay, because um, you've been television. T- touching the television. Touching television, yes. Yeah, uh, priestlies were common things, not for myself. I managed to keep all my uh, wicked sins secret and away from everybody else. What, was it mainly the priests? Like, our, our group didn't identify people as elders or priests, uh, and in, in your group they straight up called them priests. How did it work was there like a softer version of it that there'd be a, a bit of hinting and warning first and then eventually a priestly or would it be suddenly there's a priestly without warning no no it would be a, a suddenly a priestly without warning for example uh simonton he brought in in, in around in the 70s within a year or two three uh big law changes of which so, so the four well, well sorry three big issues as they were called the first one was when charles and i got married in 1977 uh, anybody who had seen that on television or who had gone to London, which one person did, 
had to confess it and then they were shut up for seven days. And so we all went to the meeting and one third had seen it. So one third. I'm sure some of them thought it was worth it. I, I mean, I mean, maybe yes, I'm sure they did. But I would say most of the members were in one sense fully committed to, mm-hmm. in, at least to go to all the meetings. Now, they may have had secret sins or sins, as, as they were called, uh, going on in the private life. But uh, every single person, there weren't, there weren't people who didn't go to the meetings. Those people would get priestlies. Mm-hmm. Ruth and I talked about the big one that got most brethren people kicked out, premarital sex. I can remember being 12 years old and seeing, being part of a backroom meeting where another young woman whom I had grown up with, I'd always known, was put away from the Lord's table because she had committed fornication. I cannot stress how much, what a big deal that was, that it was ingrained in us, that if you as a young woman were to engage in sexual activity outside of marriage, your birth culture would have these closed door meetings and would put you away. Being put away meant you didn't break bread. You were shunned. You would never see again all these people that you had grown up with. I can't stress enough how much that impacted me so that three years later, when I was abused, I was sexually assaulted. I thought, oh, the same thing that happened to this girl growing up is going to happen to me. And the terror of that, there was such a double standard. For men, it was almost excusable. There was almost like, well, you would get put away, but you'd get back in a lot faster than if you were a woman. And the sense was, going back to purity, the purity culture, the sense was that women were to be saving themselves, saving their purity for their husbands. The sense was that the only thing that women had to offer was their sexual purity. Once that was gone, whether it was taken from them against their will or whether they gave it freely, once that was gone, that woman had no more to offer. So that's one form of purity. An odd um, question. Yeah. Uh, and we were in a different decade and a different country uh, with different mm-hmm. different styles of brethrenism. My experience was that generally people didn't admit when they had indulged in fornication, quote unquote. Generally, uh-huh. people just never admitted it. When they admitted it, it was almost mm-hmm. always girls who chose to mm-hmm. admit it. And if mm-hmm. people didn't choose to admit it, normally they didn't get caught or made to admit it. Um, mm-hmm. It's something that girls came forward. And I think there's something particularly creepy about the idea of these middle-aged or senior citizen men sitting in a room like three of these guys with this teenage girl or 20 something girl telling them about what she had done or not done exactly to me that seems very creepy in my memory Mm. guys just didn't admit it so you were saying that guys got in faster in my life experience i can think of only a few like i think i think lots of brethren people were having sex but only a very few girls earnestly admitted it And there was that mixture of strong disapproval, but also the feeling that they really didn't understand. And so that we had to be Mm -hmm. forgiving of them eventually, but we had to put them through the ringer so they'd take it seriously. And somehow it was only girls Mm -hmm. who you would have the impression that only women were behaving this way. The second issue was was over 
touching someone before marriage, so uh, just touching sexually. And again, um, there was a huge ever around the world had a, a special meeting. Do you mean and, kissing? Uh, Would kissing count or more? Uh, I I don't actually know. Okay. Uh, I, I mean, at the time, I was only about eleven or twelve. But it's, it sounds like they're not even talking about actual sex. That if there was anything oh, leading yes. up to it, it wasn't actual sex. No, it no. was touching. Just leading sex. up to, and then and then what happened? And so again, everyone had had to confess that publicly, and they were withdrawn from for seven days. And I used to keep records for fun because I was so bored of something to do. And I, and yeah. I would write down all the names and so a third <laughs> withdrawn from. But then a year later, from what I remember. Uh, he brought us another issue. It wasn't just touching issue. It was actual having full sex before marriage. Okay. So again, um, that was all confessed in the meeting. Probably. How would they word it so they could avoid using the word sex? How would they, how would they communicate that? Um, good question. <laughs> in our group, they would talk about moral evil or people engaging in, in, you know, activities and they would dance around and they would never use that word. Also the word fornication. They're big on the word fornication. So to avoid saying sex. Yes, I think they would use that word, fornication. Yeah. That was for the, for, for the last issue. And again, mm-hmm. um, a third were drawn from. And uh, I, I got the records of Stockport and Manchester who we did the interchange with on Sunday, or 600. And I, I got records of everyone who we were drawn from in those three. And the, there was one couple who got the hat-trick. They, they, were, they got the seven days three times. Wow. So, stemming from everyone's gut-deep training, you are seen and treated as incredibly dangerous to your birth culture, and you in turn see breaking with or being booted by them as incredibly dangerous too. Spiritually dangerous, socially dangerous, romantically, deal-breakingly dangerous, financially and career-wise dangerous. Even if you don't think, in the most logical part of your mind, that being cut off from the tribe is terribly dangerous, your bones, your blood, and your dreams tell you that it is. And as I've said in previous podcast episodes, we were warned that if we didn't adhere to our tribal expectations, let alone if we left the group, the Lord would speak. And this meant young people dying. And a whole lot of young people did die. Every year, we'd hear of one from some corner of the continent or other. Almost all of them were in trouble with, or estranged from, the Brethren community, too. At least it seemed like that to us fringe dwellers. My sister Debbie remembers Michael's brother Mark buying into the idea that the meeting, removing its spiritually protective umbrella, might well open the door for demons and chaos to prey upon those who'd recently left or been kicked out. First season of my podcast, I said that we were raised to think that if God ever wanted to speak to you, he spoke with death. Yep, death. And then, I, and then the flip side, I remember, um, I remember Mark saying um, his idea at that time was that if uh, once you kind of decided that you were going to build a new life and you were going to go outside of this uh, cult and, and create a, a new life for yourself, that's when you would get killed. Mm-hmm. And it happened to um, Don Kiesling. And it happened to there was he would he would name the ones that it had already happened to. Well, I, I'm I'm a bit superstitious about the fact that once you remove yourself from the umbrella of familial support and concern and approval, you're very much on your own. And bad things do sometimes happen. That people's lives spiral out of control. People do get substance abuse. People meet da- dangerous and bad people that aren't from their cult. That 
they shouldn't trust and they do trust. So I think that it, it's a bit of a dicey period that that transition period of trying to move outside of of the way you're raised. I think it is. I guess quite it dangerous. is. Yeah, and it can be. I remember moving to university and and like literally with all of these thoughts in my head and now I'm supposed to live on campus in residence with all these worldly people like how can I go from I'm not allowed to go to kids like birthday parties when I'm uh, a kid and I'm not allowed to go to my friends houses because they're not in the cult and then by the time I'm like 19 or 20 I'm actually moving out and living with these evil people and and I remember, like in in university, I didn't have street smarts. I was drinking, and I would get myself in situations where I was too drunk to get myself home or whatever. And I just happened to have good people that, um, mostly women, that that to make sure made sure I was okay because women took care of each other in that scenario. I think like women at, are at awesome university. at that. Yeah. And what I think you also did that was very interesting because you worked as a Queen's Constable was you actually chose to learn to keep people safe who were drinking. Yeah, it's kind of weird that I was doing that job too, right? Because I hadn't drank for <laughs> I hadn't drank for many years. Like I, I was a new person to that whole lifestyle and I remember thinking to myself, you know, I I like this job because I like the idea of keep protecting people and keeping them safe, mm -hmm. but I also always thought you know what? I wonder if they can see that I'm cult girl. Like, I wonder if yeah. it's marked on my face somehow that I I'm not actually normal. Because when I went to university, I had this like I almost took on an alter ego, and I actually was everyone called me Deb rather than Debbie. Mm -hmm. It was just, and it started, and I didn't correct it. I was just like, yeah, I think I'm I'm I have to be a different person when I'm here because I don't know how to be on the outside, so I'm going to act a part mm -hmm. and then see if it sticks. And that carried on for quite some time where I, I felt like I was acting a part in the world, trying to fit in. And I was not sure if um, it was, you know, a convincing actor, if people could actually tell that, wow, she was raised in a cult and now she's pretending to be out and she's actually not normal. And the problem with the cult is that everything was performative. That's what hypocrite means. And your approach to the world was to perform worldliness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I smoked cigarettes with you know, and drank beer. I did all sorts of things that kind of as props. Were, were as a prop. It, it definitely felt like I was in a play and I was trying on a role because I didn't know who the hell I was outside of the cult. And that doesn't, you can't do that for the rest of your life. No, absolutely not. And too many of those who left or got pushed out then dove headfirst into incautious, toxic, addictive lifestyles of the most extreme bend. So leaving or being kicked out seemed like it might actually be, in some sense, extremely dangerous, life-ruining. The Brethren term was not going on well, making a shipwreck of your life. Military guys and girls will tell you that a leader is not just someone who says how it's going to go, but also one who listens and has some idea what's going on with those under him or her and what they are experiencing, needing, thinking, and feeling. I ended up getting kicked out of the military for alcohol and drugs, you know, and mm -hmm. I was honorably discharged, thankfully, but yeah. I was, I was extremely humiliated. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I was stood up in front of a, a 300 people and basically told I was, everybody told I was a piece of shit, you know, and yeah. uh, it, it was very difficult. You know, and here I'd grown up with all this horror and, uh, like I said, I'm a survivor, man. Did you ever feel like the military had any thought of helping you if you had problem with alcohol or is it just kick them out? Well, yeah, I mean, dude, there was, 
I had been in trouble a couple times, but because of my position, like they hit it, you know, I was able right. to get by. I, I got covered a lot, you know, and then it just came to the point where it was too much for that for them because I, I was getting drunk and causing and fighting and, you know, uh, but they put me in a program called track two. I never had even heard what an alcoholic was. I had no idea what that was, you know, mm-hmm. and, and track two was go for two months without drinking. Then you get out of track two and you can drink again. Well, I couldn't. I mean, I, well, actually, I started, I found these pills that you could take over there that would basically like doing a hit of acid. And so I was doing all these pills <laughs> and I just went off the deep end, man. And long story short, they were like, you're out of here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and my paperwork actually says I was non rehabilitated. There's no hope for me, basically what my paperwork said, you know? Okay. I was laid off three years ago, two years ago, <laughs> but I've never been kicked out of my church. I've never, um, is the layoff handled well? Yes. Yes. Um, my, I got to work in the morning. My boss came and got me and said, you know, can you come with me for a second? And she brings me back to HR and I'm like, oh yeah, you know, like that's, that's not a good way. And so the HR lady is like, how are you doing today? And I'm mm-hmm. like, like that is a part that was not handled well. Like, why would you ask that question? And so yeah. my answer was, well, I was fine until I got here. So yeah. to clarify the biblical proof text used by the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church to limit members use of things like television was the one describing the devil as the prince of the power of the air. So anything that broadcast or picked up radio signal from the air was obviously the work of Satan. The Bible was so clear on this. This covered things like radio, television, cordless home telephones, remote control garage door openers, cell phones, and computers, especially ones with Wi-Fi. Quoting another Bible verse, What hast thou in thine house? Members were required to publicly confess into a microphone in front of a larger group of brethren at Interchange, a coming together each week of brethren from assemblies in a number of towns and cities. I would say that they were paranoid. There's a lot of paranoia, and it's what you get with legalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll tell you a, a funny story, which was when these confessions were going on about, uh, well, there was one raft of confessions about radio-controlled things that people had, um, for example, things that control their uh, gates of the house, maybe, or their, cur- their blinds. Uh, maybe garage door openers. That's what I guess. Yeah. Anyway, uh, an old lady, she picks up the microphone with a quavery voice, and she said, I want to confess that I've got a cordless kettle. <laughs> a cordless kettle. Obviously, the microphone wasn't a wireless one. See, this, this is something that in my group, it would have been private. You would, you would have been, you would have basically that meeting with, basically, you'd call them priests, maybe three guys, and they would privately discuss it with you in your own home, and they'd go back and report what you had said. From what you're describing, it sounds like a room filled with people and you're amplified. You're standing up and holding a microphone and confessing your sins to everyone. That's it, crazy. It, it was both though. There were, there were the private police leads, mm-hmm. uh, which I'd say I only had one myself. Um, uh, but there was both. There was the private police leads and the uh, public ones. So if someone would be found doing something, you know, like, uh, uh, having a mobile phone, for example, mm-hmm. uh, then, then, uh, then they could they they could get shut up. The next of the Tuesday night meeting was the issue meeting, and the priests involved was was announced that you know they shut up that person. 
technology really changed things. So in my day, obviously, a, a television was a large thing and it was hard to hide. Now, we did our best. We had um, a lot of wardrobes in our houses, and, and that's not because we were fans of C.S. Lewis and the Narnia Chronicles with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It was because you could put the TV in the wardrobe, and then if anyone knocked at the door, you could close the doors, and the TV would be <laughs> shut away inside. The other move was to have a blanket near it, and you would throw the blanket over the television, and then it would look like a nondescript piece of furniture because, yeah, it was a bit of a different environment. What gets a group called a cult is when you have leadership and no one had any say in who exactly that leadership was going to be, and the leadership not only doesn't listen, but actively shuts down and signals the need for socially punishing discussion, criticism, and mocking of how power is being wielded. For many of us, Getting kicked out was part of leadership getting rid of dissenting opinions. If you have the title and status and say of a leader, yet there are people who lack all of that and are under you but whom you clearly can't lead, it seems like either you have to step down from the job of leading them or get rid of them so you don't have to lead them. Our leaders were supposed to be spiritual ones with all the answers to everything. And the way I termed it at the time was that increasingly I started having the wrong questions, ones that didn't match their answers. This just kept happening. They'd hand me all the answers, and then my questions, as they cropped up, wouldn't fit those answers at all. So I got kicked out excommunicated from brethren groups across the world. If any brethren group in some random city had then allowed me to eat at a fellowship dinner or church lunch or to take communion there on Sunday morning, they would have had to confess their error to the brethren worldwide or been, as an entire church group, put in the same position as me. Out, gone, cut off, cancelled. Here's what it was like for me. Constant cognitive dissonance what we eventually started calling gaslighting. It was knowing that wheels were in motion for years to get rid of you and people you knew and being called paranoid and assured that this was absolutely not the case while being increasingly spied upon, gossiped about, and questioned. Emily can relate. Um, I have had an experience that's like that. Um, again, unfortunately, it goes back to that whole purity culture thing. There was a point where... There were members, high profile members of our church that decided that I was too immodest. I started to notice that I wasn't being asked to be involved with the youth in our church in the same way that I had been. And that, you know, I wasn't being asked to events as much. Um, I wasn't being asked to certain gatherings as much. And that certain people had kind of gone silent and were not really talking to me anymore. You know, it wasn't that they wouldn't talk to me at all. It was just that the friendship that I thought was there or thought we had been building at least suddenly, it seemed to have gone cold. And then finally, when I talked to a good friend of mine who I knew had strong ties to this other group of people and and told her what I had been noticing, she told me like, okay, something is happening, some things have been said, mm-hmm. you're not crazy type thing, yeah. and um, you are kind of being, this, it wasn't the wording, but she told me gently that I was kind of being phased out yeah. due to my apparent immodesty. But I mean, I wasn't a rebellious teenager. I um, 
I didn't lash out or anything like that. Uh, I tried to be very good and follow the rules. Um, but sometimes I think it's just that, you know, there's a personality conflict or somebody just strikes a certain group of people as being all wrong. It can be the way they look, the way they talk, the way they act. They have certain things that make a certain group of people feel threatened. You know, maybe it's too much independence. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's too much eccentricity. Maybe it's a skill set that people are envious of. You weren't a strong-willed free thinker by any chance, were you? I tried to be very good, but um, and I was very shy, but it was also weird because as much as I had that introvertedness, I was also very vocal. Mm-hmm. It was the way I was raised. I was raised with a set of parents who were very vocal about things, and so I tended to be like that, too. I don't think all girls get the same treatment, and so I think the ones that look better get disproportionate amounts of attention for modesty. Right. The ones I mean, there aren't. were comments that were made about my body specifically, too, but I felt like it was more than that as well. Like it's it was okay. Personality. Possibly, yeah. But yeah, there was definitely the whole piece where I was spoken to very often about my appearance and about my body. I'm going to be bold and assume several things, one of which is that you looked good, and another of which is that you weren't easily cowed and controlled and when they tried to make you feel bad you felt bad but it didn't make them feel like they had handles on you and in my experience anyway even my own excommunication it's when they kind of give up trying to control you they sort of realize that no matter how nice you're being how courteous you're being how morally you're behaving or whatever Mm -hmm. if they don't have their hooks into you or if they feel those hooks slipping if they feel you getting freer you being freer in your head is enough, I think, to make them punish you. Yeah. So I had learned at that point that there was nothing I could wear that would make anybody happy. It was like even when I was modestly dressed, people would say, oh, I saw your belts. You know, mm-hmm. oh, you were just on the verge of being a modest. And that is enough to earn you detention. Yeah. <laughs> so. and, th- and this is not men saying I was attracted by your belt. This is women saying that they were offended by your belt, which is several levels of remove. Like it's a pretty complex little social system that the women right. are the women are curating this culture. It was being told that all of this was being done because they loved and cared about us and just wanted what was best for us when absolutely everything told us that none of that was true. It was getting a registered letter notifying you of your now excommunicated position and your standing as a wicked person. It was being told that as a wicked person, you would officially be treated as such and that people were really sad about this when their voices and faces and written tone all sounded slightly triumphant. There was an underlying message of, ha, gotcha, finally, you slippery bastard. The registered letter did not inform me that I was no longer a member of a certain church group. It informed me that I had been put away from the Lord's table itself and could, by implication, no longer eat the spiritual food served on it by our Lord, nor have any fellowship with any other Christians at it, or marry them, or talk about the Bible with them, or anything. I'd now been cut off from the only legitimate earthly connection to God. Just that. It was being told that although I might claim to be one of them and a real Christian somehow, they now had an administrative ruling that no one was to any longer view or treat me that way. It was people saying you might technically be a Christian, but as someone not going on well for him, you weren't one, practically speaking. Your standing before God in some theoretical way was that of a Christian, but your state here on earth wasn't. You had walked away, wandered off, 
or been kicked out, and were now on your own path, doing your own will, instead of God's. Then it was people telling us afterward that what had happened to us hadn't happened to us at all, because stuff like that didn't happen to people, not in our group, so clearly it hadn't happened to us either. It was people concocting amazing gossip to try to inflate how bad we'd been and what bad stuff we'd done to the point where our treatment sounded more defensible. To be clear, it still bums me out to even think about it. It was the point at which the ecclesiastical impasse was broken by decisive action on their side. Nearly a decade of our culture refusing to let us be ourselves and figure things out and ask our questions and build lives that might work for us without them sabotaging and meddling, spying and gossiping. Nearly a decade of us refusing to try to be entirely who and what and how the old guard insisted we be every day for the rest of our lives. This wasn't about us finding or starting a new church or just leaving this one. We'd held firm to this one when most of the other brethren members had left to either form a new one or stop coming out to any church entirely. And we'd been born into this one. We'd always tried to work within it, and people wanted us gone, though they insisted they didn't. And we weren't going anywhere. And many of us felt that in order to actually get rid of us, they were going to have to be willing to drag us to the rail and toss us protesting over the side of the ship. We suspected they were the sort of people who would do that, given what we'd grown up seeing, given how many had felt the firm hands on their collars, so to speak, and we were giving them the chance to stop the endless cycle of kicking all dissenting or diverse voices out, to decide that enough was enough was way too much. But they acted true to form. They told a bunch of us, one by one, that we were kicked out, and then generally denied that fact when asked about it by anyone else, unless anyone else was going to include us in anything, at which point they were reminded they needed to exclude us as well, because we were out. Cheryl mentions what this was like in a doomsday cult. One of the, the most recent group, the most difficult thing to accept was watching other people being shamed and everyone sitting there and acting like it was okay. Mm-hmm. And people crying, leaving in tears and, Oh, something righteous and holy just happened. And I, and for a while I thought, okay, I'm going to watch and find out. No, nothing righteous and nothing holy happened. That didn't help the person that was just through a wrench in them and they might lie and say, Oh yes, thank you for correcting me, sir. Um, but the, the worst part is silence of the people observing mistreatment. Well, and to me, then there's another culty kind of thing where you break a rule. That's it. You're out. Like you can't mm-hmm. be trusted anymore. What is the purpose of what is the religion serving then? Like, how is it serving you? Like if you're kicked out, then you're, rem- you can't be redeemed. You, in theory, you should be able to be, but like yeah. with my sister, you know, it was, you know, her dating habits. And so they were quite forgiving because everyone wants to date people and stuff. In my case, I wrote a work of parody of one of their documents. And so they never wanted me back. There's no way oh, I was ever because of sat. I got kicked out for satire, which is very me. It's performative. Mm-hmm. So, so the, these, the lifestyle is not to benefit the members, certainly, and, and also not to benefit other people. It's all about how it looks and, um, it's creating some kind of a cultural 
image. Hmm. Which doesn't really seem to like when I think of religion and the good thing that religions do for people, it doesn't seem to fit in there. Like no. the, the idea of charity and forgiveness, you know, uh, we, we do things like go to McDonald's and say grace mm-hmm. so that people could see. Yeah. We never did that. Certainly in the home, no matter who was there, you, you say grace before dinner, but mm-hmm. I went to a Sunday morning meeting in Pennsylvania once and an older guy named Ray, seeing me not take communion, not breaking bread, asked me if I really loved Jesus at all. Hearing that I did, Ray asked how I could then just sit there and disregard our Lord's dying request to remember him in this way. I told Ray I had always done this since my early teens, until I'd been kicked out for writing a parody of a Brethren pamphlet. Ray laughed in disbelief and said, We don't kick people out. Well, you kicked me out, sure enough, I told him. Ray repeated that my saying kicked out wasn't right. It was disrespectful of me to speak this way about serious matters, because Ray had been gathered since before I was born, and we both knew right well that we didn't do this. We didn't kick people out. So I told Ray, Well, I'm out. I didn't want to be out, and I'm not allowed back in. They've refused to ever meet in future to discuss the matter of me being out, and there are three names signed to the bottom of this letter letting me know that I am out, so I think that I was actually put, pushed, shoved, kicked, or thrown out, unwillingly, permanently, and for their reasons, rather than my own, I told Ray. Ray told me he'd have to have a long think about this one, because it didn't make sense. How could something that just doesn't happen have happened? As happens, 100% of the time, when I'm told someone is going to have to think about something I said, no thinking on his part then occurred. To this day, whenever someone tells me, I'm I'm going to have to think think about about this, I hear, I am am going going to to never think about this. Because that's what it usually means. This This is is making me think uncomfortable thoughts. I'm going to need to get all that to stop. Michael Vetter, who knew Ray, remembers this event. He obviously had not been near the mountains of Mordor uh, like you were. You grew up. (laughs) It's amazing how many people try to tell me how things really go down around here. (laughs) <laughs> John Kaiser certainly done the same. Just try and correct me about what really happens around here from, you know, safely over the border in Biden country. That That's one of the things, it doesn't matter whether it's about children who have been molested or people who have been cheated financially or, you know, abuse, neglect, uh, weird political infighting, people unfairly dismissed. It seems to really challenge people if anyone wants to talk about it. And there's this need to shut the people up and deny that that stuff ever happens. Yeah, great need for secrecy. To this day, Jewish, Catholic, brethren, and Muslim parents refuse to even attend their children's weddings if they are choosing to marry someone who is, even slightly, outside the faith. That just happened to a formerly brethren friend of mine for marrying a guy who isn't a Christian. I can't underestimate how tribal we human beings are and what it feels like to have your community and your family vow to overtly exclude you in a myriad ways until you're finally in the ground one day. Basically, I think me being kicked out of the meeting put you in this position that when you wanted to marry a brethren girl, brethren people wanted me to not be there and my sister not to be invited. In other words, they were interfering with your wedding. 
because you wanted to include some of your friends who the church had kicked out. Um, what do you remember about that phase of things? Our wedding was a riding of the fence because half of my groomsmen w- were not even believers. They didn't just not go to churches. There was, I had meeting and we had two halves of things that we were bringing together because we both had lives that were outside of the meeting and had no qualms about making friends outside of the meeting, but trying to get the two to actually be together was a, was a royal mess. At the same time, it was a, it was an attempt. Um, you were in the gray zone right in between the two because you had been kicked out and the meeting guys were on this side saying, okay, what was the question? <laughs> well, you're doing a pretty good job of, of describing how chaotic it was. So you could include non-Christian people and no one had an objection. And you could include brethren people who were members in good standing. But people like me, I was out. I didn't get to play any role in it at all. And people didn't even want me to go. My sister was a member of the wedding party, though. So it, it seems like it was an impossible juggling act that you were put into, really. It was. And, and our feeling was, you know, this is a wedding. It's not a, a meeting event. Even though most uh, weddings meeting people, it is a meeting event and they make it into one. But it, it's, there's no, it's a wedding. It is a universal event. It stands outside of the camp. The same with a funeral in my mind. And that, that's kind of how we were approaching it. It's like, you can't, you can't stop me from bringing in the outside element and having all of this, have, have joy of my friends at a wedding. And, and yet they did it as best they could. Yeah, I have a very clear memory of like Mark's drunk because he's in mourning and yet he's trying to run things. And yet he's not allowed to be in the wedding party because he's out I'm not supposed to be there. So I was asked not to be there. I was asked not to come. And then we worked it out and I was there, but I was an observer. So I sat in the audience. And when people that, to my knowledge, may not have been Christians were given Bible verses to read out loud, I wasn't given anything, any role to play. And both uh, Bethany's twin uncles were there and it was requested that they not be there, even though that they were uncles of the bride. And, you know, Doug had taken his own life a few months prior and one of the uncles took his own life. I don't know how soon after, but my memory of the whole thing is these people like me that it, it feels like they just wanted you to die. You know, you're not welcome in the world because you're a meeting person. You can never fit in because you were raised not to, but you're not allowed to exist within the meeting world. So it comes down to, well, where do you get to exist? Nowhere. And the easiest thing would be to not exist. And so that's, that was my experience of the time. It still makes me sad to think about it. I'm not sad to no longer sit under the sound of Brethren Doctrine five times a week. I'm not sad to no longer need to pretend I don't watch TV and movies and listen to 60s, 70s, and 80s music. I'm not sad to need to pretend I don't go hear live music or that I never ever drink a beer or a glass of wine with friends. I'm not sad that I can write whatever books and record whatever songs I want and have a podcast like this one now. I certainly couldn't have had or done any of that before without losing my place. I'd have been kicked out and shunned for life, after all, and I was terrified of that happening. But I am sad. I'm sad because a network of people and their husbands, wives, and kids, a network that sprawls all over North America and beyond, with more connections in it than people I went to high school with, a network that connects me still to small business owners in my community, to kids I teach, to people friends of mine meet and interact with on a weekly basis, well, I'm stuck in a very funny position regarding that faith community or Christian network. Funny awkward, not funny like Dave Chappelle. 
I didn't walk away from it. I didn't choose or join or build a different one. I'm still deeply forever connected to something that has put me in a very special position vis-a-vis it. I wanted to say a, a little bit more on the the Doug thing. Yeah. Um, at the funeral, I had tried to sing um, Danny Boy. Yeah. And well, I did. I sang it at the graveside. But come ye back when summer's in the meadow, or when the fields are hushed and white with snow. It's I'll be here in sunshine or in shadow. Oh, Danny boy, oh, dog, my joy, I love you so. Then Doug's uncle Jim, not to be upstaged, Decided and, and seeing that I hadn't sang a hymn, started the hymn of Life at Best is Very Brief, like the falling of a leaf. Life at best is very brief, like the falling of a leaf, like the binding of a sheaf, being in time. Remember that? Oh, yeah. That's tacky. Oh, I pray you count the cost ere the fatal line be crossed and your soul in hell be lost. Be in time. It it was awful, and it was just like it, it took what I had done and it grounded out. Um, so, anyways, the the whole mourning process never happened, and like you know, I had held it in. And I didn't know, I didn't even know how to mourn because I was a brother person and we had never, not learned how to mourn. Have you, did you ever see the Robin Williams and Carol Burnett, um, keening episode? No. Fantastic. Watch it. It's, it's at a funeral and he, he's a stranger who comes in to this funeral that Carol's having and it's her husband that's died and he starts explaining to her about keening and how good it is for you when somebody's died. It's, I, I don't know if I could. I've just never done anything like that. Let it out like that. Yeah, you have to let it out. Will you help me? I will. I'll try not. Just do it soft at first. Jesus, darling. Uh, 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 By the end of the episode, he gets her to be going. Um, That's a pretty good Carol Burnett impression. Yeah. <laughs> I love Carol Burnett. But anyways, I was watching about five years after Doug that I was watching the movie Ray about Ray Charles. Yeah. And he, and Ray, uh, it's, it's in the beginning of the movie and his brother flips in a pool and he watches him die. Mm-hmm. He, he freezes and he can't move and he just watches him die. But then there's this scene of the brother's funeral and it's the whole black community. Oh, no! 
singing and they're shouting and they're 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 taking the casket into the church and you see it from up above and there there's this huge like celebration of his life that's happening in the church and it's this beautiful black funeral and I'm watching this with Bethany and it's doing this thing inside of me um, because it was the antithesis of what happened with Doug's funeral but there's such a connection between watching your brother die. Um, and like being on the phone for 15 minutes, singing him songs, like trying to pretend that he hasn't shot himself in the head. Um, and when I saw this, the send out for Ray's brother, it broke something in me and the grief came out uncontrollably. I've never had this happen like this. And it, it just like I threw my head back and noise just came out of me. It was like, like that and uncontrollable. I've never had that. But it was all of that grief, all of that suddenly mm-hmm. just it shot out. It was it was quite the experience. And it's something that as brethren people we we were not supposed to have access to entertainment arts like the music and movies and this kind of thing. And you're giving an example. Uh Ruth makes the case in an episode that these things aren't just entertainment. They're they're about being human. They're about getting through life emotionally. And uh taking those away from us. If if you don't have Danny boy, because it's not him, all you've got is life at best is very brief. Like the falling of a leaf, like the binding of a sheaf be in time. It's like a little get saved jingle and it's, it doesn't work. It, it's not for that. What that reminds me of selfishly is my grandmother was dying years ago. And it was one of those where, where we knew more or less the day that she would die. And we'd been told she was in a home. And so um I went I decided I would sit with my grandmother. And when I went, there were her daughters and she had four daughters and they were there. And I was struck by the beauty of these four women who were very different and didn't agree about a lot of religious things and so on. But they just sort of like, I thought they were almost like angels. Like they were all around the bed, these four women. And also there was me and random other people came and went. But also one of the daughters had her husband and he decided being the man that he would handle the situation with a bunch of gospel preaching. And he played a bunch of educational hymns, you know, about the brevity of life and and all that. And he kept on preaching. It wasn't a conversation. It was a sermon and he wasn't blood related. We all were. It was either their mother or their grandmother, all of us. And he wasn't blood related and he was being the pastor in that brethren pastor way. And he kept preaching about how in this home, many people leave this earth, you know, very regularly and that we're different because we're Christians. We know where she's going. So in other, other rooms, when this happens in, in that home, there would be tears and mourning and despair and lack of hope, but not with us. Because we had hope and I did the wrong thing. I responded as if it had been a conversation because he said something about, of course, the hope is that lots of people will be saved when they see how happy we are, despite your mother, your grandmother dying. When they see the different attitude toward death, when they see the smiles and they see the lack of mourning and the hope, they'll all want to be what we are, just like us. And I responded. I said, in my experience, and keep in mind, I'm about 40. I'm not a child. I said, in my experience, honesty really helps you connect to people. And when someone wants to know, what do you have? And what does it mean to be a Christian? 
I've never had better results, so to speak, than in letting them in on the good, the bad, the hard, the easy, the humanity of it. And he took his wife, the daughter, my grandmother who was dying, and they left. So ah. one of my aunts did not stay and watch her mother die because her husband was refusing to interact with me for saying something like that. And then one of my other aunts turned to me and said, you're welcome to stay if you don't talk. And of course, right away, I thought, was it his talking or my talking that was the most out there, the most from beyond this family and the most unreasonable? Am I allowed to have a response to the death of my grandmother? I'm watching die or not, but I stayed and things were okay. So I look into the eyes of a 17-year-old girl I'm teaching Shakespeare to and wonder, do you know that when I was your age, your uncle and my aunt had a very public affair in our Plymouth Brethren Assembly? What has your family taught you about them and me, your high school teacher, and our connection to our respective relatives? You wouldn't even believe it if I told you some of the random, messed up, and libelous things Christian people have said about me, often to their kids, who wonder what the deal is with me. How bad a person would I need to be, and how bad must the stuff I did need to be in order to make lifelong excommunication and shunning seem like a necessary, proportionate response? Wrote a joke version of an outreach pamphlet. Just doesn't seem to do the trick. So things are invented. I know creative writing when I see it, and it's my life they're rewriting for consumption by a credible readership who weren't there. The downside to the discretion with which my expulsion was handled was that all the people shunning me so faithfully had to admit when pushed to it that they had nothing but gossip to explain why I'd been excommunicated to begin with, because they simply didn't know. The assembly was kept in the dark almost entirely about this assembly decision they had all made. Several told me they'd heard I'd been involved in creating some kind of pornography. Even the son-in-law of the key figure involved in kicking me out believed this. He'd done half an hour of phone call telling me I needed to show more shame for the pornography I'd created before admitting he'd never seen the pamphlet in question nor knew anything much about what was in it. This put him in, he admitted, a bit of an awkward position as to debating me, its author, about the shamefulness of its content. When folks like him found out that the porn in question wasn't me taking photographs or video or anything like they were imagining, but was a parody of the original pamphlet and it having a centerfold, which was a picture snipped out of Sears' catalog of a young woman wearing a very modest one-piece bathing suit, they were deeply confused and said they'd have to think about this. And we all know what that means. I look into the eyes of a 15-year-old boy who's not been doing his history work and wonder while I'm telling him the stuff that he needs to finish up, do you know that it was your grandfather who signed the paper kicking me out of our church group after he'd given me the third degree and tried to get me to offer up my friends? What has your family taught you about me, your high school teacher, and why I don't go to your church anymore? I look into the eyes of a 16-year-old girl I'm teaching about punctuation and wonder, your dad had to leave his brethren home when he was your age to play in the NFL, which was not allowed to brethren kids who weren't even supposed to be attending NFL games to watch them. 
He and I went to Young People's before that, where he was a fun boy, known to drink beer and so on. Well, I did none of that, and had a strict dad, and was not, therefore, to be trusted. What has your dad taught you about me, your high school teacher? I look into the eyes of a 17-year-old girl and wonder, your whole family is still very brethren. I just might be starting to date your aunt who left that group last year. What have they taught you about me, your high school teacher? I look into the eyes of the mother of a 16-year-old boy who's not been doing his English work and think, while I'm telling her what stuff her son still needs to finish, your younger brother married my cousin. What have you told your son about me and why I don't go where you go anymore? Obviously, this episode is primarily about me and how I got kicked out of my faith community and shunned for life and gossiped about and thwarted in many ways as I tried to get on with my life anyway, and about some lyrics I wrote about all this as I tried to sort it out. But it's been very interesting, troubling, and perspective-giving to talk to various people who were treated far worse than I ever was. And, Ed, you were in Barranquilla, Ecuador. Barranquilla, Colombia. Yeah. Colombia, sorry, I'm saying the wrong country. I, I was trying so hard not to say Barranquilla really badly that I got <laughs> the wrong country. Um, but, yeah, and, I mean, obviously that's that's very different. And would you say that you were the result of sort of brethren outreach? You're kind of adopted yeah. into a Christian yeah. family? Yeah, I mean, my my grandparents and my mother was the result of the missionary work, you know, those British brethren and people from the States too. They, they start, you know, reaching out every, every, every community in the mountains. And, and yeah, many assemblies were planted and my uncles and my grandparents, they all, you know, were part of the assemblies. Mm -hmm. And so when I was born, I was born, you know, going to an assembly. And yeah, but I I became Christian when I was 15, 15, 16, you know, in a Bible camp, I I felt that then God was, you know, calling me. I always, you know, was afraid about, you know, all the things about hell and, you know, and, but I always, wanted to take a real decision never wanted to be forced because i was afraid about you know going to hell but because i really wanted to have a real relationship with god here ed raises a point ben is also mentioning repeatedly love versus fear being right versus having a relationship ed wanted to know god because he wanted to believe there was some good in god some worth in getting to know him rather than just reason to fear him and to therefore do whatever it took to appease him. This is the opposite of those brethren men at deaths and funerals insisting on making the loss a golden opportunity to pour fear of hellfire into the hearts of a captive audience who need desperately to mourn the passing of a loved one to somewhere they cannot follow. It's like my 80-year-old father, afraid because his grandson wasn't raised to love God or fear hell, texting my nephew, dire, deranged-sounding warnings about hellfire and the devil, trying to instill that fear very much at the cost of his relationship to his grandson and his daughter, who wants him to knock it the hell off. But he's doing it because he thinks he's right, and he's scared and determined to share that fear. There is no healthy, clear sign of love or wholesome relationship in it at all. Quite the opposite. As for us folks at meeting, So long as we were kept scared, they felt good about us and said they loved us. 
If we felt too happy and free, though, this scared them, and they lashed out. And I also, I didn't like the way I saw, you know, people. Example, like my mother, my biological mother, and people around me. I felt I don't want to be like them. <laughs> If I want to want to be a Christian, I want to be something different than these people. <laughs> tell, tell a little bit more about what it was about their life that you didn't want to copy. I mean, these people always. You know, we went to every single Sunday to church, and they, you know, they were part of the communion service. And these people, when they came back from church, they are totally unkind, not really willing to, you know, show grace. And so I was like, I don't want to be like these people. I want to be different. And so, and yeah, I wanted to pursue that kind of relationship with God, and I wanted. I knew God can, you know, do something in my life and transform my life. But the difficult part of the conversation is you—you you were both uh, very respected. You were both very helpful and active in what you were doing. Did you meet online, or did you meet at like an, a brethren event, or? We met in the Dominican Republic in a big brethren event. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Both going for different kind of both for the correspondence school, but yeah. we didn't know each other. I never yeah, heard about we, each other before. Yeah. And, you know, you fell in love and um, obviously this had to be kept a, a secret because you knew that that was not going to be allowed and it wasn't going to be forgiven. I knew what could happen to me right. if I was open and Just honest, you know, you know, like even I remember when people approached me to say, are you gay? Are you struggling? I always deny it because I thought I think I can be fixed. But also, I don't want to be open because these people will punish me mm -hmm. just because. And I saw so many people, you know, who express to people their struggles and they were punished really bad. Like, you know, kicked out from church and isolated. And I was like, I don't want that for my life. I want to enjoy, you know, my relationship with people. But if I can be open I know these people will not show any grace. I knew it. They, they can't show any grace. When I decide to be, you know, like tell the story about my real life, I felt like they were open to listen, but then they set all the conditions, you know, for like, you need to do this, 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 otherwise. We we want to proceed with our, you know, process about his communication and all of that. And I knew, I don't think these people want to walk with me. You made that sound like that was a long period of time. Yeah. This was literally the same conversation that you told them, the same conversation. They yeah. were giving you the conditions. And within a day, there's excommunication. So within 24 hours, all these decisions were made. There was no yeah. walking with. This was a decision no. immediately. And yeah, and there they, and one of the elders told me, He said, um, I don't think we, we can do anything for you. Uh, you can remain single and, but not be involved in the church because people with homosexual struggles can be involved. And I was like, what? That's so unfair. Mm -hmm. And so that's what the, one of the reasons because I, I didn't want it even, you know, I was definitely wanted to be out of the closet. The closet was killing me. But I, I really wanted uh, to see what these people going to do with me. I thought that maybe they will be loving. They will care about me. No, no. That was no. totally different. They treat me really bad. And um, Ed shared a bit with me 
when it happened so that I know that it wasn't just a form letter saying, you know, we regret to to inform you that you're no longer a member. There was none of that. It was actually quite nasty. Do you mind either one of you or both of you telling a little bit about just how spiteful they were acting like you had hurt them? This wasn't about you guys at all. The meeting, I guess, with the, the idea happened that it had one week to repent was the time period given from they told everybody in the church at one week to repent. So people did text and commun like that's it, just text, no calls, but just texting. Um, that like, you were supposed to like, repent. Yeah, repent, repent. That was the word. It was how, really, how does that was how does that work? How do you repent? I know repent for me, I was repenting. That's what I was doing. That's what I could. They weren't understanding. Repentance means confessing something about yourself that is real, and then changing that behavior. I didn't want to lie anymore. I was lying. I was de- mm-hmm. deceiving people. I felt I was sinning against those in a, in a way that they couldn't maybe understand their sin, but it was. I was convicted. And this was a God-led decision to be open. It almost and sounds like they wanted you to repent of telling the truth. They did. That's exactly how I interpreted it. So it made no sense. And so I had no response to the word repent because I didn't want to go into a battle. And so I just, then a week later, they just told the whole church and the cut me off completely. And that's the thing. They said, do not talk to Ben at all. Do not see him. Do not text him. And so immediately everything stopped. And that was okay because I already, you know, I already had that expectation, I guess. And I understand there is some pain on their sides for like, oh, we thought we knew you and we didn't know you. And I'm like, yeah, exactly. That's why I'm ending that story. Mm-hmm. Now you really know me. Do you want to be near me? Do you want to hear the other side of the story? Do you want to see what God is doing in my life? There is no window to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the fact that the letters that were written, like that was written to the local church, but then across the whole country, there was letters yeah. written, information given, and that, and their part is pure slander because they're making up stuff. And yeah. we've heard back from people that are completely crazy stories that they've interpreted because that's what's going to happen when you tell one person to tell another to another. And in the end, we just raise our hands. Okay. Um, because we got to move forward with what God wasn't asking. just an announcement or a letter telling the facts. Uh, what Ed shared with me is they were using really nasty words. Like I think they were saying like perverts and. And things are disgusting, like words like that that are not their job to be. If, if they were just to say that, you know, we disagree about this lifestyle, like, um, like really. Yeah, there was a letter then, then a missionary, actually a Canadian missionary wrote. He was making all kind of stories about me because my mom and I were planning to come to Canada. And he said, I forbid any, you bringing it to Canada. And it, there was to my mom my adopted mother. And then he said, and I was coming because I was planning to come here to uh, sleep with all my boyfriends in Canada. And I was like, what? Mm-hmm. Is this so... There's an assumption made that every friendship I'd ever had was a gay relationship. It's a of gay course, relationship. Yeah. And like, I, that, like, yeah. That happened to me, I think, too. Yeah. Kim agrees with me that in our brethren group, despite it being stricter than Ben and Ed's in many ways, it would have been much more likely for them to simply cover up a situation like that one. So he was like the coming up on 30. He was like the new hope for for that. And he went to a big conference of brethren missionaries, open brethren missionaries. And he met an open brethren missionary from Michigan and fell in love with him. 
and now they're married and they live in like Sarnia. So what happened to him is his entire brethren life collapsed into nastiness that I swear our meeting wouldn't have been that nasty. I think our meeting would have just quietly written a letter and gotten rid of them. Their well, meeting yeah, was, their meeting was like vindictive. Under the rug, you know, quietly, like, mm-hmm. um, I didn't have to deal with being gay as a Mormon. So, and I know kids who did, and I'm sure they would have a lot to say. What happens? Um, in the two that I know of, they were pushed out, the, the individuals themselves, but then their families were pressured, um, to, I don't know, not, I don't think they wanted to convert them back, but they were, it was made known that their children, um, were, what's the word? Were impure. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what they expected them to do about that, but all of the families that I know who had gay kids ended up leaving the church themselves because of them. I haven't talked to anybody else who got excommunicated for life for satire that people keep asking, why was I kicked out? And people have said like, well, how did that pamphlet do that? Like, why didn't they just tell him it wasn't good and he should stop? It never occurred to me until years after. What do you think of the idea that part of the reason why I got kicked out was for hanging around with your family? Oh, there probably could be. Yeah. Because I think there was. Um, and when they were supposedly interrogating me, they were much more interested in what your family was doing than anything I was doing. Yeah, I would agree with that. No, we we were um, already a, a pariah. Mm-hmm. And then many uh, investigations, I will say, I will use that word, mm-hmm. because I used to disciple guys at church or disciple people. They start like going through these people, trying to get any information like he was pursuing or trying to abuse or was trying to, mm-hmm. you know, like that kind of evil thoughts and, and thinking, then you never, I never thought about these things, you know, I was mm-hmm. involved with teenagers, I was involved with an organization who worked with kids, and these people were trying to get information. The decision is always yours, and your whole future may depend on making the right one. So no matter where you meet a stranger, be careful if they are too friendly, if they try to win your confidence too quickly and if they become overly personal. One never knows when the homosexual is about. He may appear normal, and it may be too late when you discover he is mentally ill. So keep with your group, and don't go off alone with strangers unless you have the permission of your parent or teacher. Obviously, having friends like Ed and Ben and Kim means that many brethren people are going to wrongly assume that I must, of course, be gay myself. Is the lack of understanding of what it means to be gay? Yeah, it's an assumption yeah. mm-hmm. of a fear. It's a fear motivated, yeah, but it absolutely. is lack of understanding and lack of deepening questions. Right. And then you've got numbers that are blocked. And how if I wanted to repent, I can't even contact anybody yeah, because they blocked everyone, me off. Everyone and, me. and I think for me, it's the irresponsibility of a leadership to write a letter that's you know very clear. You're not welcome to our church service, but to add in the not even con- no, don't if you contact then you're also in sin with him, mm-hmm. making everyone afraid, which is, again, fear motivated, yeah. not love motivated. And then now we're talking about anyone out there. And then that's the irresponsibility. Rumor starts, slander starts when you don't guard the story. You let others just take it and run with it. And then so you get texts saying, I hate you That's from people. I get things like that. And I, you know, this 
these kind of attacking that, that grows. It went from, you know, just repent what happened, like, you know, to that first week to grow up to just all kinds of vicious fear and hate based. Yeah. And so it, people, would, people who were yeah. Christians who you had yeah. gone to meeting with literally texted, I hate you. Yes. That's so hard to believe. I, I do believe you, but I'm saying it's hard to imagine that they would feel okay doing that as Christians to say, I hate you. Something that has to be pointed out is um both of you not only are extremely experienced, but I think trained and also naturally gifted at treating people decently and handling conflict and all of these things is something that you were both employed because this is what you're good at. And then you got to sort of be on the wrong end of people who knew nothing about how to treat people properly. Ironically, the elders of the church I was a part of are, most of them were Bible professors, but they had also counselors and therapists that should have known better. And that's mm-hmm. what's super strange. To not have one conversation after doing that is for me one of the things that I'll never understand. I actually reached out to different people after about a month um, just to see, you know, if they wanted to to hear because I just felt that burden of, you know, I did kind of just walk away from them so suddenly. I didn't mean to walk. I wasn't walking away, but we were cut off. I wanted to just check in. Mm-hmm. But those relationships were sticking to their theory of do not interact with men. And then the slander started to get out and I was starting to see these extra, I hate you. I, I, I've, you know, really think you're a worth a wicked person and you're a false prophet. Antichrist. Yeah. You got called an antichrist for being gay? Yeah, I was I was there were three different sermons in my church bringing up my my case and these people are not done with me. They keep talking, they keep spreading things and the last thing I got from a friend was they were saying I'm a false prophet and I uh, I don't have any any hope and you know like turning back to Christ and I'm the antichrist and so saying things like that is so unfair and yeah these people don't really know nothing about about you know about us we are quiet we're not here to convince anybody of something that they don't want to accept we're okay if you don't think being gay is uh, you can't be married you know we're not gonna not talk to you we understand that it's a, it's a big step and a complication to your, your many people's backgrounds. But if you can act in love to those around you and still love somebody, even if you don't agree with them, then, you know, that's going to be totally fine. So we're not looking to cut people off, but we're not trying, we're not out there trying to trick people and manipulate. And it, the definition of a false prophet, again, in the New Testament is someone that's prohibiting, it says, <laughs> foods or asking for money or even prohibiting marriage is one of the, and I think it was Thessalonians? No, Timothy. Timothy says a false prophet will prohibit marriage. It was like, oh, mm-hmm. well, okay, so you're prohibiting gay marriage now. <laughs> you know, like when I, Angelo reached out about, he, he said, Ed, I, I got some bad news about you. Then even I was, they they said he wa- I was even taking money from the mayor's office mm. and saying things like that. And I was like, what? Who said that? And he, he said it was like living a luxury life because I was using money from the mayor's office. I said, I'm not allowed even to handle any money. And so why do you think I'm using money? 
and and uh, or taking money from the mayor's office. Wow. And so a lot of a lot of miscommunication, a lot of people adding information like very evil information. And so I kind of was so sad that people don't even took the time to reach out and say, I want to clarify those gossips because, you know, that's a lot to take in. Because you mentioned Exodus and um, like, I'm not gay, um, but somebody had had a brother who was gay and he was visiting in town and uh, she said, you know, he doesn't know anybody, would you like to hang out? So I hung out and he was quite honest with me and told me he was in Exodus. I was a bit dubious. I wasn't sure how that would work, Exodus exactly. But anyway, um, just me hanging out with him meant a whole lot of people were determined that I was gay and told everybody that we were gay. And it, wow. it, it doesn't really make a difference. I mean, right down to uh, there was a gay guy living up the road from my parents. And one night I was taking a walk and someone hit me in the face with a beer bottle because they thought I was him. So you don't even have to be gay to get gay bash, it turns out. Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. Wow. Once I was put under discipline, out of fellowship, away from the Lord's table, a Pennsylvania friend recently reinstated after being kicked out for premarital sex about a year prior, suggested that I ought to be formally blocked and excluded from all commenting online with Brethren People too, as I was out and I wouldn't be allowed to speak in reading meetings and Bible discussions. My Pennsylvania friends had started a Bible discussion forum online, and after I commented once on there, there was then this controversy about my having done that. It amused me to no end later when telling our thick friend that no, I would not be back in soon enough and then able to comment on their posts. He decided to reach out to the local brethren to talk about my situation. He made it clear that he was interested in barring me from participating in online Bible discussions until such time as my local brethren restored me to fellowship, as the Apostle chides the saints in Second Corinthians for not doing with that wicked person Mo. He was told that they were refusing to discuss the matter with him or anyone else, including me. My assertion that they would not be sorting out the situation later in the year, or in any year at all, in fact, started to come home to him at that point. So I've made some attempts to try to connect to local Christians, and, and so far I've I see no progress in the real world. Whereas online, I'm connecting to all sorts of people, but I don't know if that counts. Don't it know does if that count. Counts. Does it? I That's found good. it. I would have to kind of, because we've connected with some wonderful people online too, and this, uh, absolute community that counts. Cause it is anyone that makes you feel like you're not alone as community. We are barely forming a new network. We lost our whole network. So we have threads of relationships. And so we have new ones now here in Canada, here where we are, mm-hmm. um, which is wonderful. If they had been honest and just sat down with me and said, look, like we're, we're not the same. We don't live the same. We don't feel the same. We don't view the Bible the same. It's probably better if you go to a different church. That would have been so much better. Um, but what they did, in fact, was say that, you know, I was an evil and corrupting, wicked influence on the church. And, you know, I was not invited to people's weddings and things. And, you know, you know what wow. it's like. You were in your 20s? Yeah. I mean, that's just evil. Wow, that's a very uh, fragile age to be, you know, when you expect to be surrounded by a community and, you know, be loved. The theme of the gossip is unanimous in my own church and in the other ones around. 
He's incredibly angry and bitter and wants to hurt Christians any way he can. Writing the book I wrote in 2015 that is the philosophical father to this podcast got my ass dumped by a woman who wasn't even brethren anymore. Because things like that book and this podcast, well, Christians in general and brethren people in particular say that these things hurt people and couldn't possibly have been constructed for anything but that purpose. That I hurt brethren people and ex-brethren people every time I express myself and share my experience. Brethren people who try to get us excluded from weddings and funeral events and refuse to come to ours, even if we're their children, are getting hurt by us simply sharing the fact that they're doing this to us. I'm hurting them because I talk about it all. I put the unspoken stuff into words so we can see how it's shaped, which they feel is the very worst thing I could do to them holding up that mirror to us all to see what kind of Christians we've been being, not keeping shtum about insider business, particularly dirty deeds done to me and family and friends. They expect me to accept my outsider status silently, but take their secrets to the grave just as silently like I still have some form of insider position, which I definitely don't. And the thing is, my sister is the angry one, not me. And she left on purpose and refused to come back in when they tried to get her to. My sister takes her teenage daughter to the grocery store in their neighborhood in Ottawa and is accosted on the sidewalk by an old brethren missionary handing out gospel pamphlets. And she wonders, you don't remember me, do you? You kicked my brother out of your assembly right around 2000. I left around the same time because it's all bullshit and lies in your cult. Why are you trying to convert me to Christianity today? What would you say if I told you that I find this gospel tract triggering and the furthest thing from good news I can imagine and that I'll be talking about you to my therapist later this week? When my sister says triggering, she doesn't mean that a thing makes her uncomfortable or offends her or makes her remember something unpleasant. She doesn't mean it's going to spoil her afternoon. She means it is likely to trigger a panic attack, racing heart rate, shortness of breath, mental confusion, all of it. When people casually say this or that triggers them, meaning it spoiled their trip to Whole Foods or Starbucks, that vacuous use of the word triggering doesn't trigger my sister. It pisses her off. She was all the way over in Japan when she sent a letter saying she wanted out of our culture. That's how far she went to get away from it. And even in Japan, they wanted her to attend a brethren church with three people in it there, the leading and only brother there being clearly severely mentally handicapped. So my sister said no, and almost never talks about her past with anyone but her therapist. Going to Japan, moving to Japan and and teaching there was me finally saying, okay, um, I just have to get some clearance, like space in my head and I have to be in a space that doesn't um, have familiarity at all to me because then I'm learning from scratch how to be. And no way to blend when you're the only blonde person in Japan. Yeah, no way to blend. And it was, but Japan didn't really work in the way I thought it was going to work. I was escaping things that I wanted to get away from. I also needed, I needed headspace. I needed clarity, but um, it wasn't that I was suddenly now a foreigner in a different way mm-hmm. and I stood out all the time. So it it wasn't um, I'm not sure what I thought I was doing, but I know I was running. I was trying to get away. And atheists still assume that most of us think and talk about God because religion gives us comfort. Right. 
Here's what trying to salvage something from the Bible and Christian upbringing is like if you're us. Pardon me for taking my inspiration for it from the book of Ezekiel. It's like someone you love very much, but who's not here right now, baked you a beautiful birthday cake for your birthday. Then the person who took it upon himself to deliver it to you personally said it was very, very important to eat the right side of the cake first, and never the left-hand side like those bastards up the street do. So he squatted on the table in front of you and took a big steaming dump on the left side of the cake so you wouldn't eat that. Then... A fight broke out in the room over this action, with everyone trying to snatch the cake away, culminating in someone breaking the plate over your head, shoving your mom so she fell onto the floor, and drop-kicking the cake through a window out onto the lawn. So now, out of love for the person who made you the cake, you're out on the lawn on your hands and knees trying to pick out something you can eat to try to enjoy in peace and quiet a piece of cake that's not got grass, broken glass, and human shit on it while someone keeps lecturing you at your elbow about what fork is the only correct one to use to eat the cake and reminding you to eat some of the cake each and every day before breakfast while singing a happy song in the key of G with an open D chord employed throughout. Some of us leave and never look back, but many of us find that fear and shame and self-loathing stuff from it got its roots into us when we were little kids, and in middle age, it still preys on any weakness we've got. I've seen research cited which posits that spending six months in any institution changes you permanently, leaves a mark. You adapt to fit the institution, and that adaptation is a lasting change in how you're shaped, in how you cope and act and react from then on to some degree. So six months in jail, six months in a mental institution, six months in basic training for the military, six months in a hospital, Two years in a school system sporadically implementing random and ever-changing, incredibly disruptive COVID measures. Spending 20 or 30 years heavily involved in a controlling, watchful, involved church culture is no different. We didn't fight in a war or anything, but still, many of us, especially those who suffered psychological, physical, and sexual abuse in their Christian group, end up getting diagnosed with PTSD decades later. And the people who think that the solution to church trauma is a bunch more church aren't thinking much. Full disclosure, I haven't been diagnosed with PTSD, and I'm not one of the people who suffered sexual abuse among the gathered saints. Just those other kinds of tough-to-deal-with stuff. The sketchiest things that ever happened to me was that when I was ten, an older man in our church who seemed to have a crush on me and invited me to his house tried to force me to sit next to him on the couch and kept staring at me and smiling at me all through meeting for a few months afterwards. And at roughly the same age, at a Bible conference, the teenage son of a leading brother was very determined to show me his penis. No matter male or female, gay or straight, we all have one thing in common— We've all had people who were determined to show us dicks we didn't want to see. It should be noted that although I certainly was given the harshest, really the only official punishment my church meets out, I saw little or no anger in it at all. None that was overtly shown. Now, of course, that's the chilly climate there, the idea being that loss of control, loss of temper, is sin. But through all of their dealings with me, they never shouted at me or called me any names, well, besides a bad influence, a corrupter of the young and a wicked person, but, but nothing casual or profane. A couple of people spoke to me afterward, and the group gave me the one follow-up visit to inform me that there would be no further follow-up visits or communications, 
and there was a calm, bureaucratic Canadian winter chill to all of it. The key figure in it all was a Dutch city planner, the very guy who decided where to put all the concrete medians and one-way no-left-turn signs in Ottawa, how snow removal worked, and how to find people who parked where the snow plows needed to go. Deeply logical and no nonsense. To that guy, I and my friends were sources of continual nonsense, raising spurious questions, being disrespectful, not taking the sacred cows as seriously as we were required to, not just going along, not just showing up, not just keeping quiet. So this guy's response to any deconstruction of or analyzing anything was simply, that's just not how it works. People like that are, in his case, very bright, but in conversation, in debate, in open-ended thought explorations, they absolutely function as if they are simple-minded. And the words that come out of their mouths are not their thinking at all. And that's training. That's indoctrination. That's the only thing that does that to people God gave a fast, good, solid brain to. But that guy? He never showed me any temper. He just smiled like a shark the whole time we interacted. This was very different from what happened to Ed and Ben in their open brethren assembly. It's a cliché in therapy circles, and for good reason, that anger is vulnerability's mask. That it's a cover for something weak and undealt with underneath it. That it's putting on a fierce game face and hoping one's bluff doesn't get called, because that person got hurt somehow, and is now unable to cope with that mask ever coming off. Michael Vetter reached out to me recently, and I was surprised at how much easier it is, emotionally, for me to compose sentences and type them or save them into the mic all by myself, retaining all of the control, precisely when I mean to, as compared to talking freely with someone else who was there when, and who can unexpectedly say anything at all, reminding me of things that don't bubble up from my own memories naturally. That's a lot harder. I found it a bit grueling. But it's nice to let people like Michael and Ben and Ed into my life when they clearly have a simpler, passionate, more committed relationship with God than I feel like I have left to me nowadays. Michael likes to write hymns on occasion, and usually they end up being some kind of mix of black spiritual and Sunday school children's song. Where I have fled my brethren musical roots as fast as my docs can carry me, Michael has doubled down. So the lad sang a few takes into his recorder in his trailer in Tennessee. Rejoice with a clear triumphant voice. On the side of Clinch Mountain, while pounding his fist on his guitar for rhythm, and had me layer stuff over his voices for him. Collaboration. Where I struggle to maintain belief that I'm useful to God or Christian people in any way, Michael leaps confidently in with the assumption that God needs tools to defeat evil with and that Michael himself might be just such a tool. Make me a hammer in your hand, O oh Lord. Make me a hammer in your hand. I want to smash the foe with God Almighty blow and shatter his pieces o'er the land. Make me an arrow in your bow, O oh Lord. Make me an arrow in your bow. I'll be a fiery shaft in your bow of burnished brass. To strike through, I'll wake you down below. And the righteous shall rejoice with a clear triumphant voice. And the mountain shall resound with a pound, 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 pound. Make me a sandal on 
your foot, oh Lord. Make me a sandal on your foot. I want to stomp that snake till the earth begins to shake and grind into powder in the soot. And the righteous shall rejoice with a clear triumphant voice. And the mountains shall resound with a pound, 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 It goes without saying that the experience of having an emotional angry falling out with one's birth culture, like a messy divorce, is not how everyone's church experience ends. Talking with Natalie, I was struck by how different it was for her, and perhaps more typical of most people. At first glance, you'd expect Natalie's experience of her upbringing to be rather like mine, or maybe even worse. A host of idiosyncratic limitations on the personal life choices of members, and co-opting much of their weekly and annual schedules? Check. Closed off us versus them view of the world? Check. Hierarchical religious system with endless ladders to climb to reach heights of elevated spirituality? Check. Father deeply involved in the group and working to get promoted in it? Check. Wild, insupportable beliefs and unorthodox biblical interpretations? Check. Natalie was raised Mormon, but like many people, with their church experiences and some people with their marriages... Natalie just reached a point where she left home to go to university and kind of left being Mormon behind, too. Like most religious teens do. Not because it was too stifling, culty, or controlling, though a case could certainly be made that it was all of that. No. She was just done with it. So she packed it up with her NSYNC CDs and T-shirts, her R.L. Stein Fear Street novels, mod robes, pants, and butterfly hair clips, and mostly left it in her childhood closet back home and forgot about it as she went on with her adult life. Her husband's not Mormon, and neither are her kids, so it's safe to say that neither is her life anymore. Natalie's not a Mormon or a member of any religion anymore, but she's also not really kicked out of one, and she has fond memories of her Mormon church and of youth group and so on. But the beliefs themselves didn't really work for her, didn't really make sense, and as her sense of self was apparently very strong, she parted ways, even a bit regretfully, with all of it. When I made my break, it was when I went away to university. Mm-hmm. Like I was excited to just be on my own and not go because I chose not to go and to see what that was like. And I guess it, it's weird because bef- right before that too, it was in high school when I was probably my most zealous about it, you know, like grade nine and 10, I would go out with the missionaries as they were talking to people and trying to recruit other young people. Like I was really involved, mm-hmm. but I guess like I had mentioned to you before, when I started asking questions and I wasn't getting satisfactory answers, I guess there was just a moment of disillusion and I wasn't angry about it because there were so many good things about the church. It was kind of just like, well, you know what? I don't, I don't buy that anymore. So I'm going to take all the good things and just go live my own life. So that's more common. I can't tell you how many former church people I talk to who tell me that they have very, good memories of church and good feelings about church. And sometimes they even kind of miss church, but they never had the beliefs to begin with, or that wasn't the deal for them. Whereas with me, it was the opposite. Church never worked for me. Uh, It was always about the beliefs. And so I was in it for that. And when that didn't work, 
then there was really nothing else there for me. And my memories of church are largely that it never fit me and, right. and, and it was, I was required to fit it. So that's, that's really different. It's funny too. Cause in the end, like even now, as the missionaries came back to my house, you know, they tracked me down eventually and tried to get me coming back to church. I always just had an understanding of, no, I understand that this is good for you, that mm-hmm. you believe these things and that's great. And I still have an understanding of why we have religion in the first place. Like it's a very good for a lot of people path to take to help them be good people. The values and the virtues are good things with all religion. I think people need guidance and they'll take it where they can find it. And again, it's opposite with me. And I guess, I suppose it depends to begin with the ideology, but also how it's implemented and the attitudes of the people and the relationships of the people that you deal with personally. But mm-hmm. for me, I mean, when people say like, what, what would be good about religion as well? Comfort. Well, I've certainly never found religion comforting. For me, it it always greatly complicated my life and raised all of my moral standards much higher than is comfortable. And I'm I'm kind of trapped, I think, needing to do better than you know regular people. I always have always raised that 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 regular people screw up and they don't try that hard, and we need to do better. And even though I'm I'm not going to my church. I don't feel comfortable with breaking rules and things like that. I'll argue about, about them, right. but I don't. The other one, like you said, that it makes you a better person. Well, I firmly believe that much about my church made me a worse person. Hmm. Maybe judgmental for one, superior. Well, no, cl- I would agree with that. Yeah, I would agree judgmental. Mm-hmm. And I always thought, you know, the Mormon religion is like, uh, I am a child of God is one of the mottos and their songs, you know. And that starts very early on. So I always felt like I was more special than other people or like I had a purpose and God put me on this earth with some sort of divine purpose that would manifest itself. And I guess as I got older, I'm like, okay, but I'm just like everybody else. Like there's really nothing that special about me. How come all my friends can do what they want and they seem to be having a better time of it with, you know, without those restrictions growing up? Wasn't there that feeling that if you let slip and acted like them, that you'd be losing a lot of things? Yeah, or maybe not losing things or that I wasn't, you know, worthy enough anymore. Most of what people are talking about is, you know, as a kid, really resenting the limits and find them ridiculous, but having their their life really defined by their religion and then having a falling out with their religion in their teens or 20s or 40s or whatever and most people, it required almost like a complete rebuilding of their worldview. And it was really traumatic. And as far as I can tell from having spoken to you, it wasn't that traumatic at all. No, I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't say trauma is a word I would use. But you, are you surprised to hear that some people find it deeply confusing to switch worldviews? No, because certainly the, I went through a point where I was aware that I was following something that I didn't discover on my own, that it was something I was led to believe. And I even would say like, I believe in this, but it wasn't something I ever thought about or discovered. It was something I was told to believe. So Mm -hmm. there was a moment where I was like, you know, no, I have to figure this out on my own. And um, I don't know if that was a big deal for me. It was just kind of that point where I was like, I need to just step away. The story of Johan's conversion to atheism after being raised in a church culture isn't too different from Natalie's. 
Johann's father Don was raised Presbyterian, with no real vested interest or belief in that faith, and found himself in midlife caught between his son Johann, who had discovered he did not believe and didn't think Don really did either, and Don's wife and daughter, who were fervent Baptists, who demanded Don not sit on the fence but make up his mind. With time, it became obvious that Don could not be pushed into a performative, feigned faith in Baptistism, but wanted to walk in truth and sincerity. I was just hovering out and asked, are you going to be a fence sitter for the rest of your life? Sort of thing. And uh, what could I answer to that? I don't know. So... I don't think I'm a fence there anymore, though. It's just... I've got a wife and a daughter who... who are on the other side of that fence, and uh, I am on the... on this side of it. I don't know what to do about it. Don has not chosen to boycott church-attended weddings and funerals, nor to ban people of faith from them if he is to attend. A man putting away his wife is looked at as his act or his will. If he puts away, he has broken a tie God formed by his own will. So your grandfather kept attending church even though they excommunicated him. Yeah, because one of the hard things to convey to people is, and I'm sure this is the same if you're Jewish or Mormon or Jehovah's Witness or Sikh or Muslim, it's not the usual thing where you go to whatever your favorite church is, and if you don't like it, you pick the next one up the street. It's like, this is your birth culture, and there are no other cultures. So hmm. this is yours. And if my grandfather had left, it would have just been like, you know, converting to Judaism or or Buddhism or something. Like, it's different religion as far as he's concerned. Hmm. Wow. So go, going to like a Baptist church, most people say that, that must be almost exactly the same. And in most ways, you'd think so, but we weren't raised to view it that way. Hmm. I'm, I'm assuming that Mormons were the same, that the idea of, well, you don't like the teaching in your Mormon church, we'll just go to a Pentecostal church. Like, that's not how that works, is it? No, no. Um, you can go to the Mormon church in the next town over, but. Same. Yeah, same. Ex exactly like that. And for us, it was uh, eight years old is when you were old enough to understand and say, yes, I want to be baptized and become a full member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Johan professes to have a much healthier self-image and attitude to being ousted from social groups than I can quite manage. As an adult, I have never really been ostracized, alienated, or shunned. Um by any of the groups that I have chosen to participate in or socially participate in. Um, at least not yet. Anyways, uh, have I ever played a role in doing that to someone else? I hope not. Um, I like to think that I am uh, welcoming and, and open to others. I know I'm very lucky in that sense. But I guess I just don't, it's not that I don't care. I do care. Like, I care about what other people think about me. But, you know, I just don't have time to, to worry too much 
about whether or not people want me to be a part of whatever it is that they're a part of. I, I think um, I, I don't have the time or the patience, uh, especially as I get older. If you don't have time for me, that's fine. I've got, I don't have time for the, for the friends that I love. I don't have time for the people that I care about that care about me. I, if, uh, if you don't want me to be part of your group, so be it. Um, I, I have absolutely no, I, I wouldn't feel even remotely bad about that because I, I know who I am. I'm proud of who I am. I feel good about what I'm doing with myself. Um, as much as anyone can, I suppose. And the things that I don't feel good about, I'm aware of and I'm working on. And if someone else doesn't like that, well, you know, f*** them. Let's look in the wicked mailbag. A one, a two, a one, two, three, four. Walk into the wicked mailbag opening. The wicked mailbag, what's in the mailbag today? Sandy says, completely disowned from my family when I came home from the mission field with PTSD because we don't have mental illness in our family, and if you have it, you're not in the family. Problem solved. Henry identifies the precise moment his church ostracized him, saying, it was the point at which I realized I had to take my own decisive actions. Gloria says, I was asked to leave Amazing Grace Baptist Church about 10 years ago. It was over dispensationalism. I am a millennial. I was taken completely by surprise when I was asked into the pastor's office and was met by the elders after the service. I was confronted by our eschatological differences and asked why I had ever come to the church. I said, I thought Jesus was enough, meaning we had our essential faith in Christ in common. That was not enough. Dispensationalism is a serious theological system. I didn't fully comprehend its breadth in the Baptist Church. My time spent with the Plymouth Brethren emphasized this. I have backed away from them, but they kindly did not thrust my husband and I out. They might have if we had openly expressed our difference in opinion. Claire showed a lot of spunk at age 15 and tells what happened in a lengthy comment she left on Facebook. I was 15 and had taken less than a year off to contemplate my religious affiliation. I'd been a part of a mainstream Methodist church from the late 60s to the early 70s. Our minister was quite charismatic, but not in the religious sense, and loved by all. I'd been providing free nursery care to some of our members during the first service, and I couldn't understand why those same people would pass me walking on the way to church in the freezing cold or rain and simply wave without offering to give me a lift. Then my brother, who was in Vietnam, received a letter from the church informing him that he was being removed from membership for not having tithed in the last year. No forewarning, no checking in on him, nothing. We hadn't been tithing as children because neither of our parents attended this church. On top of that, our family had just survived the trauma of my brother's turret exploding on his ship. It was days before we knew if he'd survived the blast. While I was grappling with this, wondering whether the church was offering me the spiritual home I needed and whether I should talk with the minister regarding my concerns, the minister came to see me for what I thought was a pastoral visit. Without asking me how I was or why I wasn't attending church, this minister, who had such a tremendous ability to appear to be an open and welcoming man of God in church, 
launched into the fact that my membership would be removed if I didn't start tithing again. I was taken aback, but had enough presence of mind to say something like this. When you came here today, I thought you wanted to talk with me to inquire about my well-being, spiritual and otherwise, to learn why I haven't been attending church. Instead, you tell me I'm about to be removed from membership because I'm not tithing. For all you know, I could be seriously depressed, and a visit like this could be the last straw that pushes me over the edge. The church removed my brother from membership for not tithing while he's been serving in Vietnam, and we received that letter after he'd survived an explosion in his ship's turret. I was a founding member of the church years before you became minister, and my name is in the foundation's cornerstone. So remove me from the roles of the church or not, there's no removing me from the cornerstone." Before you arrived today, I have been contemplating whether I ought to return to the church, and thanks to you, I now know I will not. Then I showed him out of the house. I mean, I kicked him out. In case you don't know, tithing refers to the mandatory donation of 10% of your annual income to the church at which you are a member. We had no such obligation at the Plymouth Brethren Church. Asked if getting excluded and ousted from groups ever happened to him, Shalomi Homie says, Yeah, sure. I think we all have, though some much more than others. I'm too narcissistic to care, unfortunately, as that's my defense mechanism. I move on and find a group that will welcome me. In fact, Shalomi says, Ostracizing people who don't fit in an in-group is a natural human thing, saying, I know I have done this. I honestly assume that I still do it all the time. I think that's a part of our primitive lizard brain that is always running on default. This album seemed to want to have a lot of soundscape and many songs working as intros and outros to the songs proper, so I went with that. While waiting for Troy to come over and work on the music for the song I wanted to make his first co-songwriting credit, I worked out what came before and after this song itself. At the time of the recording of the previous episode of this podcast, this song was just the lyrics, with no melody having ever been crafted the lyrics written 20 years ago and I knew I wanted a twisted version of Abide With Me to be the intro. Imagine my surprise when watching the recent Netflix Catholic vampire show Midnight Mass, finding that the Newton brothers, no relation to each other, did a gorgeous two-man choir version of Abide With Me as part of their hymn-heavy soundtrack to the vampire show. I wanted to do something less pretty with it, while leaving it still an expression of a soul in dire straits and alone, reaching out to the Almighty. Besides that intro idea, I also had a silly outro mini-song, written from way back in the day, that I haven't recorded since back then. Man, we definitely went head-to-head in the past, and he's never shown a sign of being sad I'm gone, didn't acknowledge me at all the last couple of times I was in a room with him, But if Wim Van Hofwigen dies this year, I'm probably going to feel pretty bad about trying to sing kind of in his accent for the holy man character, in the voice I grew up hearing, and the one I heard on the other end of the phone, getting me to acknowledge I'd got a registered letter bouncing me from my birth culture as a wicked person that day, as if maybe I was going to lie about that and pretend I didn't get the letter. But... Sing in a silly accent I did, and the more ridiculous a character presented, the happier I was. So I did it, in one take, on a whim. 
so I hope he's doing well and never hears it. I'm of an age where the people I used to argue with when I was a young man have grown too old to pester or have died. Okay, Troy just left. What I did was I wanted to remove most of my songwriting from the equation entirely and let Troy create a catchy, repetitive riff over it so my work had to build on his rather than him decorating mine. I don't write with riffs usually. I write with vocal melodies that aren't wired into a riff or any instrument part at all. In theory, a riff could decorate any of my songs later. I don't always get that working. It's very different to establish a riff as the skeleton of the song and then be committed to try to sing the already written lyric over top of that riff. So for this, I didn't use a drum loop that might define a groove for Troy. I just used a click track. I set it to a fairly neutral tempo and then said my lyrics blankly into the mic without singing them, signaling when I thought a riff might fit by saying, Establish the riff. The occasion is most solemn. We regret, we must inform you, that you were told, and now it's come to this. We have no choice, and now must ask you, would you please come with us? Establish the riff. Establish the riff. Establish the riff. Troy lugged in a bunch of guitar stuff on one of the coldest days this winter, and I mic'd his amp, and he worked out a few riffs to put into the song. I used hand signals to let him know where changes happened. The cat wasn't sure what to make of any of this. Establish the riff, while only a placeholder for Troy's riff, sounded like it could form some kind of song all on its own. Establish the riff. Establish the riff. Establish the riff. Troy thought I could and should make the song sound like Ghost, a Swedish satanic metal band. Well, I thought I could make it sound like Savior Machine, an older American Christian metal band that makes apocalyptic concept albums about the events in the book of Revelation, obviously. I think Ghost owes Savior Machine a bit of an apology for sounding so much like them. In any case, this song is about evil church people, so I'd hope to give it some evil church groove. So I tried building the song around Troy's work, trying to add sections and variety to it, and found it quite hard. It's not how I usually work. It was pretty heavy, so I tried making one part acoustic guitar only, for contrast, with Troy's part muted entirely... and putting some harmony vocals over one part of Troy's riffing. <laughs> Troy can sound very 70s or very 90s, and I said I thought we should go 70s for this song, but it ended up being quite 90s. I reached out to George, who'd sold his music store, which then went out of business due to COVID measures, and whose house then burnt down, to see him about recording some drums for me. George had sent me an anti-Justin Trudeau during COVID comedy song he recorded and done a video for it. Hey, hey, 
So I thought I'd give it a shot to see if he was set up to do some drums for me. He needed a new kick drum head, he said, and was very, very broke. Our small town music stores have pretty much all gone out of business due to COVID restrictions, so George tried the Ottawa one. And due to supply chain issues, they said it would be a month before they could even order a kick drum head for him. So I went on the internet and had a new kick head for George delivered to my place of work two days later. Then I went to his partly rebuilt log cabin, which he cannot now afford, and delivered the head to him in the worst snowstorm we've had so far this year. He was somewhat bemused at the rhythm irregularities in Troy and my temporary performances he would now have to play to. A few days later, George came over in his Jeep with his dog Rascal, who wanted to romp in the snow and eat my cat's food right out of his dish. We set up the drums as far into my living room as the cables would reach, which wasn't very far. I mic'd the kick drum with the mic in front of it from the audience's perspective. It sounded good, but George wondered about miking it from the front from a drummer's perspective. As George had tuned the front skin down, it actually sounded rather comedically rubbery. So, back to front from the audience's, not the drummer's perspective, we went. And George had me lean a cushion on the kick to take some of the ring out of it, as the song is already filled to the brim with long, low-end sounds. Then George did his best to play along with Troy and my oddly constructed song. He pointed out that the high, peak living room ceiling was adding a lot of natural reverb, which sounded okay, but could not be removed later if I wanted. We lacked the cabling to move the kit to less resonant parts of the room, for example, with the peak of the ceiling not directly above the kit. It's not exactly when the levee breaks by Led Zeppelin, which was recorded with the drums in a stairwell, but it's about halfway there. I ended up editing drum bits from two takes following George's request to put a particularly nice fill from a previous take back into the one that I was using. Then it was a matter of redoing the rough parts, which we'd done to get proof of concept and song direction together, and which weren't as locked into George's work as they could have been. Troy came back over and re-recorded his riffs. And he added in some textural stuff, too. And though I ended up keeping the double chorus I'd set aside for Troy to maybe do some lead work in the second half of, in lieu of vocals, we sneaked in a bit of Troy's lead anyway. And I redid pretty much everything I'd done without the drums to play to originally. I re-sang the harmony vocals to be in better time and better tune. I played some guitar through the organ pedal. And did some distorted sludge guitar to play along with and mix in with Troy's sharper, more shiny, distorted sound.
now please the occasion is most solemn we regret we must inform you that you were told and now it's come to this we have no choice and now must ask you would you please come with us Put aside our questioning, sat and waited for me. 
think you are who are you that you can treat others this way well i'm the holy man i'm the holy man i've done much less than all you've done with my holy hands and my holy hair holy cause i don't go anywhere i will flee all entertainment keep my clothes all free from statement you should too should stay indoors with the pure and saintly force Just for smelly feet Seek some fire to guard your path Burn not lest we burn with dry 